Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast for another conversation on Christian faith and discipleship in our secular age. My name is Sam Forniker. I'm your host, and this podcast is a resource of the Ridley Institute here at St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of talking with David Ford, Regis Professor Emeritus of Divinity at Cambridge University, about his new book, The Gospel of John, a Theological Commentary, published in the UK under the auspices of SPCK. Uh, listeners here in the US uh, will find it published by Baker Academic. Um, Professor Ford, David, if I may, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Well, it's lovely to be with you, Sam. Um, well, David, before, before we jump in, I think lots of folks who are listening um, will be, as, as we've discussed here just before our chat, um, keen lay readers, uh, keen lay folks, they're, they're not necessarily keeping up with the academic theological uh, scene. Um, so to, to give listeners some context for our conversation, can, can you give us a little background on, uh, on the history of your work on John? Uh, what are the concerns that have that have driven you? Have there been certain contexts in your life, certain relationships that have provoked your interest in, in John's gospel in particular? Well, um, I mean, John just has always been the most fascinating single text for me. And uh, I, I spent at one time, I spent five years doing a book on Second Corinthians with Frances Young. She and I just, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience in, into that marvellous letter. But at the end of it, I felt that I'd sort of, you know, uh, learned a bit about how to uh, get into scripture in such a way as to make it really relevant today. Mm. But I knew that the Everest facing me was John's gospel. <laughs> and in 2000, I decided that I would risk the climb. And, um, and so I've spent 20 years on it. And, you know, the the um, and it's grown more and more fascinating. You know, it's it, it hasn't reduced at all. It's still as even more fascinating than it was at the beginning. And what I found is that uh, and I'd found this before, but somehow rereading and rereading and rereading and reading what other people have read down, uh, written about it down the centuries and around the world today. Uh, and also praying it more, you know, that that was really important as, as part of the process, learning to pray it more um, and having intensive conversations with people in so many different contexts, church contexts, interfaith contexts, you know, the practice of scriptural reasoning and mm -hmm. uh, reading with Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and increasingly scriptural reasoning is taking off in China as well. So there's Confucians and Buddhists and Taoists as well involved in the network. But but. Um, but also reading above all for church contexts. And, you know, I was preaching, I was teaching and and, and also for teaching students, many of them who, who were going for the ministry. And so uh, all those, that accumulation of things, that was what was accompanying it all through. And what I found was that all of my theology from the whole of my career seemed to get poured into this, <laughs> into this, but not in a technical way. You know that that I mean the crisis moment really uh, for me was when I retired in 2015, mm. and I'd just given the Bampton lectures in Oxford on John's Gospel, okay. and of course that had to be pretty academic. Uh, so I reread after my retirement all that I'd written 
on the Gospel of John up to then in the first 15 years. <laughs> and I decided to scrap it all and start again in terms of writing. Of course, the material fed in a, a lot mm. of it, but, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't forget all that you'd read. But but I decided John's Gospel is very accessible to first readers. You know, it, it's simple Greek. It tells a good story, lo- lovely conversations, big images and so forth. And I thought my commentary should be a bit like that, I hope. And so, so I tested it out. My my rewriting um, on the the people I rely on most. My wife, who's a an Anglican priest and a psychotherapist as well, and uh, <laughs> my best friend, who's a poet, Michal O'Shiel, and um, and a few others. And when I when they said yes, this is we feel you've got it. That's when I. Uh, you know, continued in that style, so to speak. And, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, and it isn't that I want to ignore the academic problems, but I want them to be implicit. I want to be sure-footed on the academic side, but I want to actually communicate to the the, the church and to others outside the church. Mm. And I, I think that comes through very clearly in the... Uh, uh, in the manner of your writing, I just curious to press into that just a little bit further. What was did you find anything particularly challenging uh, or um, or unique in the process of writing in this way? Was it a, was it a totally new experience? Well, the 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 challenge was the sheer superabundance of meaning in John. You know, mm. every time you think you've got it, there's more and there's more. <laughs> and then you know, the thing like intertextuality, for example, you know, where where John, you know, right from the, his opening verse is, you know, the opening words of John's of Genesis, uh, you know, taken from his Greek Septuagint. He is steeped in the Greek Septuagint, the translation of his his uh, the Old Testament. Um, and um, and he leads you constantly into uh, reading the synoptics afresh. And when you read the synoptics, you read John afresh too. You know, he's a he is the culminating text of the New Testament. I think you know that that in other words, he's got all the theological pillars of Paul, you know, of being in Christ and the Spirit and love and so forth. Um, <clears throat> And he's got the narrative of the synoptics, which Paul doesn't have. And, uh, you know, you put those two together in John and you get, I think, the crowning text of the New Testament. He's always been called in the Eastern Church, Hotheologos, you know, the mm, theologian. Mm. And uh, but 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 that is theologian, you know, not in any technical sense. It's the person who is the most mature text i think of 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 the uh, the the new testament uh, which also helps you to read all the rest as well it isn't that he does away with them at all you know mm. you just read them differently and read him differently in their light and likewise with the whole of the old testament and um it's it's been a, a huge exploration journey into the Old Testament and into the synoptics and Mm. Paul as well to Mm. write on John. You know, it's the crowning. I think what John was doing was, you know, he was he was writing his gospel a a few decades into the life of the early church, you know, before the end of the first century, I'm pretty sure. Mm. And uh, he knew what church life was like. He knew that the church had all sorts of divisions and problems and that, uh, as every the church always does. Um, and he wanted to distill the essentials. And so what you get is you get it. He he leaves out a lot of the ethical things, a lot of the, you know, his big ethics is love and serve and follow and so forth. But but he doesn't go into technical details. So to speak. <laughs> you know, he, but, but what what he's saying is, I want you to mature in faith. And at the heart of that is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Mm. 
let's get into the let's get into the book a bit. Uh, given that it's a work of biblical commentary, I think it might it might be unwieldy to approach it in any comprehensive way. I don't think forty five minutes would allow for that. So maybe we'd be better off considering some major themes, driving concerns of, of John's gospel. So just uh, to get us rolling a bit more, let me ask a very broad question. In in what ways was the meaning of John's gospel unfolded most strikingly uh, in your labor on this on this commentary? I realize that's kind of asking you about 20 years <laughs> of looking at John, but let me leave it there. I think it's just through slow rereading and rereading and rereading. Every time I had a big question, I'd reread. And, you know, accompanying that with prayer and intensive conversation with other people. And of course, I owe so many insights to, you know, my students, the church groups I've been do- doing it with, the the interfaith gatherings and so forth, and and family and friends. You know, they, that um, my wife said last weekend, you know, this has been over half our marriage <laughs> and oh, um, you know it's 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 been a, a quite quite extraordinary thing but i did have a, a my, what I call my Florida insight into into John's gospel, which was very important for me in 2019, hmm. because um, my my wife's uh, uncle Jack uh, Jack Hardy, uh, who uh, w- was her her father's brother, was not. It was to be 90, and he was in a care home in Florida. He his wife had just died, and he has no children, had no children, and so my wife decided we really should go and celebrate his 90th birthday. So we did. So we had an unexpected for me 10 days, uh, you know, there in Florida, in Naples. And um, I reread all that I'd written since that 2015 restart. You know, Mm. I'd written on most chapters, most chapters. And uh, but I hadn't actually seen how the gospel hangs together completely, what the dynamic structure of it is. Mm. And suddenly I saw it. You know, that I mean, it's a bit like a, a seeing the elephant in the room. I'm sure many other people have seen this elephant, you know, but 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 some of us are a bit dense and and it takes a while. And but but after this 19 years, I suddenly saw how the gospel works fundamentally. You know, now, of course, it doesn't mean that everyone else will agree with me, let alone scholars. They differ on almost everything about John's gospel. But but my my insight was that what it is, and it's there in the introduction to my commentary. I mean, it, it has shaped the whole introduction and the epilogue, because the the series that I first wrote this for, it, it wasn't eventually published in it, but because it was too big for it. But uh, always encouraged the authors to write an autobiographical bit at the end about writing the the commentary. And so my, mine, having taken twenty years, is quite a long epilogue, you know. But uh, but what the dynamic structure of the gospel that emerged for me was, was that first of all, the prologue gives you a horizon within which to read it, mm. and it's a horizon of God and everything. And it's a horizon in which the world is a place of deep meaning. And then the culminating insight in 118 is that there is the son in the bosom of the father, you know, the son close to the father's heart. In other words, it's deep meaning and deep love. That's the horizon of reality. That's what the reality is that we're part of. And then you plunge into the drama, beginning with the forming of a learning community, a community of disciples, mm. uh, you know, and questions are absolutely at the heart of that, of course. The Jesus' first words are a question, you know, what are you looking for? Um, and wow. then the 
Then you get into the drama of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then comes the pivotal moment in John 20, when Jesus uh, says, as the Father sent me, so I send you, and then receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it seems to me that's the third. So the, the first one is the huge horizon with love and meaning at its heart. The second is the drama of Jesus' own life, death and resurrection. Mm. And the third is our ongoing drama in the spirit. Mm. It, and because it says, as the Father sent me, so I send you, we have to get deeper and deeper into how the Father sent Jesus, which means into the first part of the gospel. Mm. And then we've to, uh, we, we've to go, we, we are sent into all sorts of new situations. So we have to endlessly improvise in the spirit. Mm. And we, 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 are, uh, we have this ongoing drama of loving and following. And at the heart of it all is that 118 again, you know, that we are utterly loved mm. and we can therefore be utterly loving. Mm. That's that's quite that's a daring theological move, isn't it? Uh, the the <laughs> the trust in the no, and I, I say that I mean with full on John's part, I think you know of yeah, um, I, just how wonderful that's that's right. I mean, how what strikes me um, is the the absolute kind of integrity or um, sort of mutual coherence of of the of word and spirit here. Of the yeah. of of the word one eighteen, and and of the spirit, bringing about this as so. I wonder, could you could you say could you just say a little bit more about the the as so uh, that the particular instance I think coming later in John's gospel um, that that brings that particular framework to mind. Would, would you well be? I, I mean, I, I think John's gospel. You know, he ha some of the most fundamental important statements in it are. In that as so form, uh, mm. both both uh, I mean cognitive ones. I mean, if you if you read in, you know, John ten, for example, you know, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows mm. me, and I know the Father. That as mm. is so. Now, how does the Father know me, and I know the Father? You'll be exploring that for all eternity. You know, I mean, it's it's so rich, so deep, and the rest of the gospel helps you to get deeper into it. And but the but the other ones are the big statements. You know, the the foot washing is you know as I have washed your feet. You know, you've to wash other people's feet. It's not quite said quite like that. I'm not quoting direct, but you know, there's an as so there in John 13. Mm. And then there's the the great love command, uh, love one another as I have loved you, you know, just as I have loved you, so you've to love one another. Mm. Um, and then the greatest of all, in a sense, is that one of as the Father sent me, so I send you. That's the encompassing one for, for all of us. And, you know, if you think of what an extraordinary thing it is to be sent as Jesus was sent, mm. you know, that, that and, and, you know, Jesus was sent and he was, he, he, he prayed, we've to pray. He taught and learned and taught he he had these deep conversations he uh, you know and also he suffered he went he was sent into the darkness and of course so many of us are sent into darkness you know mm. a darkness in ourselves darkness in the church mm. darkness in the world and um you know we, we're, we're sent but you know in that darkness we are with jesus there, I, I think that opening statement of you know the the uh, uh, 
the light shone in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it, hasn't overcome it. Um, the darkness continues and John's gospel is a wonderful accompaniment in the darkness. But the thought that that prompts for me from a pastoral perspective is what a resource for spiritual direction. I, the most helpful question I think I've been asked in terms of those who have been providing spiritual direction to me has been, um, what might God be inviting you into? Um, often in response to something that has been quite sort of scary uh, or um, uh, vacuous or, or something like that. Um, I'm reminded of those conversations as you speak about the way in which the Son was sent and how we're caught up into a similar sending, both out into the world, but also uh, into ourselves, the sanctuaries of our soul, and so on. Um, wow. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think John's gospel is about going deeper into faith, maturing in faith, mm. uh, you know, and in a sense, uh, and I mean, one of the ways I describe it all through the commentary is as an education in desire. You think mm. of our culture, you know, where you're, you're in, in, you know, you're invited to click on one thing after another. you know, your desires are being got at endlessly in our mm. culture in, in through all the media and, and and that and what do you really desire you know and J J jesus opening words to his disciples are what are you looking for what do you really desire mm. and you know the culminating thing of the des of desire in john's gospel is in chapter 17 i, I think chapter 17 has become my you know the 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 most uh, important chapter in the bible for me mm. because in it, you get inside the relationship of Jesus and his father. And then he invites us into that glory, uh, you know, and, yeah. and, and then prays. And his, he says in 1724, I desire fellow in the Greek, mm. you know, and often the will of God, of course, in Greek, thelema is also the desire of God. You know, the, the Greek mm. word means both. And people often think, you know, I've come to do the will and will is a, can be a pretty tough sort of thing. But actually, it's, it's, it means desire as well. And I think the whole of John is trying to unite our desire with the desire of Jesus, which in 17, chapter 17 is, of course, for unity in love with God, with each other for the sake of the whole world and the, the wonderful commentary of Margaret Daly Denton called, on mm. the Earth Bible commentary called mm. Supposing Him to be the Gardener. I love the title. Mm. Um, that she just makes it so clear that the one through whom all things were made, if Jesus is the one through whom all things were made, then we are utterly committed to the health of the whole of creation you know how mm. how could we, how could jesus go along with pollution and mm. <laughs> destruction of the environment especially in relation to the poorest in our world and you know that vision of unity in love with god with each other for the sake of the world and for the sake of the whole creation i think that's you know i, I mean a, a spiritual direction today it seems to me you know and my spiritual directors into this they're just like you they ask the same sort of questions but um, <laughs> That, uh, you know, we, we are being invited into that global horizon and mm. then that dedication to following Jesus in the spirit, in daring ways in our world, you know, for the sake of its unity and its, its you know, love and peace and, and joy. Mm. Do you know, um, uh, I, in a moment, I'd love to move on to another question, but if I may just tag on. Uh, I've been struck in much of my reading lately, I suppose just in the Lord's providence, how many 
how much of my attention has been drawn to love and rehabilitating, uh, uh, you know, in, in the, in, in my kind of evangelical circuit, we could be suspicious about talking about love, you know, we have to, we have to yeah. curb and so on. Um, uh, it, it has been, I've been, Kierkegaard's works of love, I think this makes four podcasts in a row that I've now talked about Kierkegaard, I really must stop. However, um, it's just been transformative. Um, rereading John, um, the the epistles as well. I mean, I, um, it, what what has struck me is, I mean, you, you say rightly, you know, John doesn't have much in the way of specifics on these ethical issues, and yet what Kierkegaard talks about with the law that has jumped out to me is that, it, you know, the the law was never a guarantor but a signpost. I think he uses this kind of language in that it always interrupted the immediacy and the urgency of neighbor love. And I think that's what's that that has what that struck me about John's gospel. Oh yes. It, it brings and, the, and I it's funny, I reread one summer. I reread in America because my wife's family has a nice house by a lake in America where we we meet up with the American side of the family and mm. and um but I reread Kierkegaard's works of love and was so moved by it all over again you know and and also the other book have you read Norman Wiersbe you know W I R Z B A his way of love no I've not but I'm taking the he's note got an, he's got another be- wonderful book just out uh, you know which is more of a heavyweight book the the uh, this sacred life but but Wiersbe's way of love is when I read it I just thought oh my goodness me this gets the Johannine essence of Christian living you know and it's a very accessible book so um, if I may put a put a question to you I just I Recently, in our in our parish, a speaker uh, was uh, the preacher was quoting from um, the great pastor theologian Eugene Peterson, and Peterson was observing um, in in the quoted passage how our culture, our kind of consumeristic culture, um, has has brought the. The, the science of Pavlov's dog to bear on the consumer, where, you know, the, just as the, you may have heard this line before, just as the, the dog is made to salivate quite apart from hunger, so, you know, with the ad, uh, the, the consumer is made to desire quite apart from need, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is, uh, I, I, am, I am sold on, and um, provoked, sold, and inspired, helped by what you have to say about John's gospel as an education of desire. Um, how how does it teach us? How does it replace that salivating dynamic that we have that are that are with which our world forms us? This is a, 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 a crudely formulated question, so help me tease this out, maybe. But how does John's gospel retrain us in ways of desiring? Um, let me leave it there. Yeah, I think it. Uh, I mean, God, what a really rich question. It, it, it. I think it, it, it grips us with something that is overwhelmingly glorious. You know, glory is 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 one of the great themes of the gospel. You know, we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, it floods us with the abundance of love, grace, truth, joy, mm. uh, glory. You know, and and. Uh, 
but embodied in an absolutely fascinating person, you know, a person who is alive. And I mean, one of the things that slowly I grew into in the course of writing the commentary was the amazement at the fact that John is writing a gospel and trusts that his readers are in the presence of the one he is writing about, you know, that Jesus is present as God is present. And so I've been been reading Evelyn Underhill, a wonderful little book of prayers by Evelyn Underhill that was discovered quite recently, you know, years after her death. She's one of the great spiritual directors of uh, the Anglican Church in this country. And um, in one of her prayers, she she says, "It, it is needful that, how does it go? It is needful that you should repeat daily the lesson of your invisible presence. Mm. And, you know, can we ever, you know, do we ever take in the glory, the wonder of the presence of God, you know, of, of the fact that we, that this is the omnipresent God who, in whose presence we are. And of course it's invisible, but, but, you know, that's the other great insight that I had at the end of the gospel where, you know, the climax of the theology of John's gospel is when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That really is the culminating theological statement of the gospel. And of course, he's wanted to see Jesus. He's wanted to touch Jesus, you know, and and all the words for seeing in chapter 20. Then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Mm. And Then what he goes on to say is he addresses the reader and he says, look, this gospel is written so that you may come to believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. Mm. And in other words, what he's saying is, blessed are those who read this gospel. (laughs) In other words, there's an amazing promise, you know, because this is what you're you're not seeing. You're trusting the testimony, Mm. but you are meeting Jesus through trusting the testimony and because Jesus is present in the spirit. And so the, the, this sense in John, uh, I remember I, re- I read the whole gospel once with Richard Hayes, who's my favourite North American New Testament scholar, mm. um, and Richard Borkham, who's one of my favourites British uh, New Testament scholars. They, they, had, they were both in Cambridge for six months. And I invited them to read John's gospel with me. And we sat down and we, we put... 21 dates of three hours each in the diary between July and Christmas. And we read one chapter of John every three hours. Now, both of them are just superb scholars and also really theological. And I sat around the table and whenever whenever they agreed on anything, because they're very different scholars, you know, I thought, well, this must be right. And <laughs> we, and one of the first things, that two things, just that I, I'll quote of, of the things they agreed on. One was that John saw himself writing scripture. Mm. So in other words, John saw himself writing something that was meant to be reread and reread and reread and that you could go deeper and deeper into. But the other thing they agreed on was when we came to John 17, they said, well, of course, this is a midrash on the Lord's Prayer. Oh. And they said... And ever since then, I have prayed the Lord's Prayer in the light of John 17. And, uh, you know, I talk about it in the pro, in the, the um, commentary. But, you know, most of us pray the Lord's Prayer at least once a day. I, well, I certainly do. And to have it, cha- to have it uh, enriched by this intertext mm. of John 17 is just astonishing. But then 
one of the scholars, Brody, uh, Thomas Brody, an Irish scholar, who I'm, I'm Irish myself, of course, um, they, that um, I'm from the small Anglican Church of Ireland in you know three uh, percent in in Dublin, um, and and uh, but Thomas Brody says um, uh, that it's also an intertext with Ephesians three fourteen to seventeen, which mm. I think is one of the other great prayers. And if you ever just try to pray together and meditate together on the interplay between the Lord's Prayer, John seventeen, and Ephesians three fourteen to seventeen, it is just well, it'll take you a lifetime. Uh, I, I'm certainly just beginning. I I hope that listeners will go away and um, <laughs> do as I'm going to do now. And by the, <laughs> by the way, would that I had been a fly on the wall <laughs> for those uh, uh, 21 meetings um, between. Wow, what a what it, it was! It was like a it was like a basic course, you know, where. Uh, I just learned so much and I kept repairing to my notes. I was furiously note taking all the, all during them. And uh, I kept referring to them all through the, the writing of the rest of the commentary. I, I don't want to miss the opportunity um, to ask a, a little bit more about those meetings um, because I'll kick myself forever if I, if I don't, but what did you learn? What did you take away about those, about that small uh, sort of intimate way of reading scripture with two others continuously in the way that you did with, with, um, with. Oh yes. Well, well, I mean, it, I mean, I think it's what Jew, Jews called Hevruta reading, you know, that, 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 that this intensive conversation around a text where you've got long enough to do it. I mean, also one thing that came out of it was that, you know, they were both mature scholars, you know, need, need you know, need, Richard Balkham had just retired from St. Andrews as professor of new Testament and Richard Hayes, well, was advanced in his career as well. And he's now retired, of course. Um, and, and um, the, they were encouraged to just distill their lifetime's thoughts about John's gospel and the New Testament and Jesus Christ and the spirit and so forth. And so because we weren't broadcasting it or anything, you know, they, they could just say exactly their fundamental thoughts about it. So I felt I got a distillation of years and years and years mm. of you know, these two remarkable scholars and theologians, you know, of their uh, discernment in relation to the the, the Gospel of John. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just so grateful for that. Oh. Well, thanks for sharing about that. I, I didn't plan on, couldn't have known to ask about it, but it's wonderful just to hear that such a thing has taken place. And, and encouragement, um, listeners, I mean, as it is for me as well, to go and take time like that to linger over question um, a scripture in that. Uh, yes, I think I think the slowness of reading, you know, for me, and the rereading, the rereading, the reread. I think John encourages that, you know, in, in the way he writes, and he also teaches you how to read by how he reads his scriptures. Hmm. You know, he's writing scripture. And how he reads his scriptures tells you how to read him. And all the way through the commentary, I try to learn from John how to read John. Hmm. Can you can you go a little bit more into that? I know at one point in the in the commentary, and maybe this is relevant. You you talk about uh, you know it's a good it's a helpful exercise to read the synoptics Matthew, Mark, Luke in a Johannine way, and you know it, and to read John in a synoptic 
way in order to bring them into conversation with one another and so on. Is that something different than what you're suggesting here? How, how might we think about that? Uh, well, yes. Uh, how John, I mean, it's just, you know, it's how John reads his, his scriptures or the Septuagint, obviously, and mm. he's steeped in it. And the more I read the Septuagint, you know, the more echoes of John, the more John is enriched as well as the Septuagint, you know. But mm. but um, I, I, I think, um, you know, one thing that it stands out in John's way of reading his scriptures is he's imaginative and daring. You know, that that he, you know, just look at his opening at the prologue, for example. Now, the prologue opens with a quotation, the opening words of his own scriptures, and it's steeped in other scriptures. Scholars just delight in the number of intertexts in John, <laughs> in, in John 1, to, 1 to 18. And you're you're led through the whole of scriptures, you know, culminating there with in Moses and so forth, mm. and um, the uh, and but and and but he begins in the beginning, but then he goes off into a daring theological statement that, as far as we know, nobody had ever made before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. And then to the central, going on into the central, right into the messiness of history and light and dark, mm. and then the, the incarnation. And um, John is doing daring theology, which takes off from Scripture, but uh, but in the light of Jesus and led by the Spirit. I mean, John believed his own gospel, you know, so he was being led by the Spirit into further truth. And, um, you know, and that's what we can expect, too, to be led into further truth. But but truth that has to ring true with who Jesus is. Mm. And uh, and with, of course, with the Scriptures that were that, that were, you know, but we, you know, because we're living new lives. I mean, you know, the, the situations we're in now have never recurred before. We, we always have to improvise in the spirit in our lives. Mm. And and John, I think, gives you a pedagogy of how to do that. Mm. And in the way he writes his gospel is instructive for the way we should read his gospel and, you know, and, and how he reads his scriptures. In other words, he inhabits scriptures in a very, very rich way. And, you know, you, you find somehow at the end of John's gospel, I think, um, you know, you've got a home, you've got, you know, that his abiding, you know, you're abiding in Jesus. He's abiding in you. You're, you're, you're being given a, a, a home where you are utterly loved and then you can go out and love others. You know, you can live a dare, a life daring in the spirit. I wonder if that connects to a, another observation. So you talk a bit about the, the tragic element of, of John here. And so a, a book that's come up on my radar lately, I've been learning to follow his scholarship, Paul Blower's, I think, Visions of the Tragic is what it's called, um, looking at... Um, just looking at the the relationship of kind of early Christian thought to um, to Greek tragedy and so on, and I think at one point I've I've heard you ask the question, what would it have looked like if uh, if early Christian theology took as its main conversation partner not Greek philosophy but Greek tragedy, uh, which I think is a, a provocative, really interesting qu question. Um, and I, I suspect you have interesting things to say <laughs> about the Gospel of John in relation to that question. 
My goodness, yes. I mean, that's the question of my supervisor, my doctoral supervisor, Donald McKinnon, one of the the great philosophical theologians, you know, of the uh, of, of Britain. He was a Scot, um, uh, and um, I mean, his work is still well worth reading. And I reread some of it. And one of his points about John's Gospel is that the tragic is absolutely there. You know, John is a realist about evil and sin and darkness and suffering and death. He's a real realist. I, I just had to write a, a piece for the uh, TNT Clark companion to suffering and the problem of evil, which is not, not out yet. I've just sent it off last week. And reflecting on the darkness side of John's gospel was very, very instructive. But, but of course, the, the basic thing that John is saying about darkness is that it doesn't have the last word. You know, the darkness continues. Mm. We are in, in many ways in tragic situations. They, they're just all over the world, of course, and the, the world itself in many fundamental ways is in a, a tragic situation. Mm. But, uh, but the, the fundamental, often counterintuitive confidence of John's gospel is, of course, that that is not the last word, that the, the, the you know, that there's, there's a mystery of evil. There's, uh, you know, and it's it's there in that darkness in, in, in John's gospel. It's not explained, but there's a mystery there. There's a mystery of our response to evil and our doing evil and our, you know, our sin and also our response to, to God, you know, and right through John's gospel, John's trying to, to encourage readers in all sorts of ways. And I bring this out time and time again, almost people probably say not again, you know, but that we're being invited to transform our desires and to make fundamental decisions in relation to Jesus. But the supreme reality is the, you know, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who we are to be attracted to, who is the the one who grips us, the one who, you know, and it's only really by putting that first and and trusting i mean it is faith it's trusting that 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 he really is the way the truth and the life that we can um you know find a way through that darkness and he's with us in it as well yeah. but you know I, when i when i was uh, you know graduating in 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 the states um in my masters henry nowen was one of my mm. teachers uh, he taught a wonderful course on ministry as hospitality and and wow. um, and he but in his farewell in his sermon for our graduation, it was based on the text, you will be taken where you do not wish to go, you know, from chapter 21, Jesus to Peter. And uh, that as a, as a text, I mean, so many people through COVID have been taken where they do not wish to go and are still there often. And, um, you know, that, that uh, Martin Luther thought that was one of the most basic texts for any disciple. So we're being trained as we read John's Gospel to desire anew, we're having the object of our affections and desire re refocused. Um, let's see how to put this. Is is there a is there a basic attitude or a, a kind of a new intellectual, spiritual, emotional, affective posture, which? Um, into which we're formed and and led. It in in order to desire newly. Yeah, I think I think uh, 
it, it's the beloved disciple, really. Doesn't that sum it? You know, you know, John gives a whole set of models of responding to Jesus, but the core one, clearly, the, the one that we're meant to enter into, we're all meant to. I think the reason he's uh, anonymous is that we're all meant to be beloved disciples. Mm. And um, the, uh, you know, in other words, our fundamental posture is that we are loved. Mm. Uh, you know that that and that that it is one of the most difficult things. I mean, I'm still certainly growing into it. I hope you know that to take in that we are loved by God, that we are loved by Jesus, that this is the truth of our reality, and therefore we can live from that. That's our home. That's that's where we 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 were born again into. You know, I mean, John. It's interesting in the synoptics. You know, where one enters the kingdom of God like a child. In in John three, you know, it's you're newborn. You know, you're born again. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a, I I had a lot of meditation on what it means to be born again in relation to John three. It's too much to go into now, you know. But <laughs> but it really was quite quite something for me just to think of how profound. And, uh, you know, being born again really is. And um, and John wants us to be born again into this family, you know, born not of man nor of the flesh, will of the flesh, but of God, born of God mm. into this family and then to be utterly committed to this family. And I, I think, but there's also, you know, that final prayer of Jesus, that prayer for unity and love of his family. It means that, we need to be extraordinarily careful mm. ever to divide the family, to, to do anything that can possibly divide us from fellow Christians. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, I, I think my principle has become in relation to church divisions and so forth is, of course, you can have arguments, disagreements, deep, deep, deep disagreements as Christians, valid ones, and you have to argue and there's no simple solutions to many of them mm. and so forth. But I think my my, my thought about unity is that unless there is something in John's gospel, John was trying to do the essentials of Christianity mm. at the end of the first century when there had been all sorts of divisions in the church. And I think unless there is something in John's gospel, to, to, to you know, the, the, one of the fundamentals, especially about who Jesus is, mm, know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then, then, Live with it, live with it, because the desire of Jesus for unity is so powerful at that time just before his death. And I I mean, my own dedication to Christian unity and to the unity with, you know, with creation and for the sake of the the, the world, peacemaking, you know, in the world. Has just been radically energized. I mean, I, I'm co-chair of the Rose Castle Foundation, which is a center for reconciliation in the in this country. And um, the, the the importance of working for peace, the importance of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of of um, of unity. You know, unity in love. That 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 was Jesus's desire. And my goodness, we need to be careful never to violate that final desire of Jesus, which is still His desire. Oh, that's a that's a very powerful way of putting that. If you were, I mean, just to to sort of rephrase it. Um, if you were, if you were, if you had one thing to desire in prayer on the eve of your suffering and death, what would it be? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Wonderful way of putting it. Yes, yes. yes. I, I think John, John 17, I mean, to inhabit John 17 really thoroughly and to go deeper and deeper into it, uh, 
you know, uh, I mean, that really can shape, reshape, transform a whole life, not just personal, but communal, you know, our, our community lives. Mm. I, I think we need a Johannine Renaissance. You know, there's a lovely book by Paul Cephalou, an American uh, scholar who um, at Lafayette, who um, it's an Oxford University Press book called um, The Johannine Renaissance in Early English Literature and Theology. Mm. And it's people like George Herbert, like Thomas Traherne, who is my my favourite of all Anglican theologians, is Thomas Traherne. Mm. Um, and... Uh, but also George Fox, the Quaker, and so forth. You know, there was a in the aftermath of the Re- the Reformation, after all that conflict and so forth. You know, there was a deep, deep movement right across different Christian traditions, and which, with political implications as well as personal spirituality ones, as well as church implications. You know, a, a move to go deeper into John's Gospel and. I feel that that's something that could be prophetic for us today, too. And the commentary is written partly, you know, as an accompaniment to those who might want to take part in a Johannine Renaissance. So for for fellow Anglican priests who spend their retreats out with copies of Herbert and Traherne, um, did you know you had been participating <laughs> unwittingly in a Johannine <laughs> exactly. Renaissance? Um, yes, I, I think one thing about it, it would be very quiet in many ways. You know, mm. it would be that hidden church of, the, you know, the, the beloved disciple and the mother of Jesus, you know, hidden away, you know, but having the profound effect of this gospel emerging out of out of that little household. You know, that's where John's gospel ends with, what is it to you if he should abide until I come. And where is he abiding? He's abiding with the mother of Jesus in a community of love and prayer. Mm. Professor Ford, I, I think I, um, I think on that marvelous note, we probably need to draw our conversation to a close. I have, <laughs> I have many more questions that I would like to ask. However, um, I shall have to return to your commentary in, in order to do so or apply you after we are <laughs> done with this recording. Um, Listener, thanks for joining us again. Wonderful to have you on. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and I do hope that you will uh, look in to David Ford's The Gospel of John, a theological commentary out, uh, again, here in the U.S. with Baker Academic. Well, um, as usual, if there are particular questions or concerns that you would like us to address on the podcast, do email us at podcast at ridleyinstitute.com. We've got several uh, wonderful conversations coming up, including with Fred Sanders of Biola on his uh, recent book on the Trinity and Soteriology, Fountain of Salvation. Um, It's been wonderful to have you here. As usual, I'm Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute podcast.